0: Welcome to the Talking Surplus Podcast, I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Simon Crosby, CTO of Swim.ai, an edge intelligence software vendor that focuses on edge-based learning for fast data. He co-founded Bromium in 2010 and now serves as a strategic advisor. Previously, he was a CTO of data center and cloud division at Citrix Systems, and also founded Zinsource, Inc., and held a position of CTO and vice president of strategy and corporate development. Prior to ZinSource, he was a principal developer engineer at Intel and an equity partner at DCVC, uh, serving on the board of Cambridge in America, an investor and advisor at numerous startups. Simon is an author of over 35 research papers and patents on a number of data center and networking topics, including security, network and server virtualization, resource optimization and performance. How are you doing today, Simon? Pretty good, thanks, Ryan. How are you? Yeah, doing great. Uh, you know we were really happy that you reached out. Um, uh, I think the listeners are going to get something really interesting from your uh very deep background. Well, thank you The first question i'd like to lead off with these podcasts is you know what got you started in tech and and how did your journey begin and how has it kind of changed over time?
1: Gosh, you know, I wrote my first compiler using punch cards on a spare Univac eleven hundred so that tells you that I 'm old, but also I grew up with old tech. And so I grew up in South Africa, Um, and for me, uh, the alternatives were really becoming engineers, a chemical engineer, say, or sitting in a nice air-conditioned machine room with a mainframe. So I chose the latter and, um, you know, the rest is just history.
0: When you kind of got started and you were, you know, back there, like you said, with punch cards, uh and they're now doing some positions where you're actually uh you know building out the the cloud division. How has that kinda of changed in the way that people do uh software development and computing um now versus maybe, you know, let's say ten years ago?
1: Well the fundamental change that cloud brings is that it's easy to do. That is you don't need to buy a computer to go off and innovate. And that's profound. And Extraordinarily exciting. We see enormous innovation as a result. The cost of building a startup has decreased because you don't have to really own anything. And so access to technology is broadly available. And I think that's wonderful. So the question is really how we make the most use of cloud and how we get developers to be the most productive citizens that they could be. Um, on cloud platforms and so serverless is another profound innovation because it gets another abstraction which hides away the fundamental underlying compute infrastructure and lets people get on with building applications and so i think it's really a huge move forward for everybody because it simplifies the whole abstraction of computing but serverless, as it is today, is commonly stateless. And I think therein lies a problem.
0: Yeah, so that, that kind of leads into a pretty good question, which is uh, you've seen serverless, come, the adoption come with that, the kind of uh, the most use of the cloud uh, with something like serverless, this idea around serverless making developers more efficient and kind of more effective. And it's got all these good things going on, but then, There are some still some areas that need to kind of be covered. Uh, Is one of those areas state, for instance?
1: Yeah. So look, the broad dynamic is that 20 billion devices, so about 2 million per hour, get attached to the network. Okay, cool. So, you know, these things have all got a lot to say. And so a ton of data is arriving and arriving, you know, somewhere, maybe on-prem, maybe in the cloud, who cares, but let's talk about in the cloud, Um, many of these devices are mobile devices. So the problem really is, how do you deal with the vast influx of data and make sense of it all um, in some application? Cool. Um, The the cloud was built courtesy of REST and databases. So REST is essentially stateless computing, and it's wonderful because it means that Essentially, any server can do my job for me. I don't really need to know which one. Um, and this, and and I guess serverless is similar, or at least Lambda is similar. And the idea is that whenever an event shows up, we go off and find the code that we are going to execute. Uh, execute the code. Typically, that code is going to go off and hit some database someplace and get an old value compute new value, and store. And all that is great. It simplifies development. It simplifies the developer's view of the world because they don't need to know about the server or the state. They just have to know that some server is going to pick up on their request and that server will put it in the database. Great. The problem with that is latency and cost. So if from my house, which is right next to Amazon, funnily enough, um, in Kirkland, Washington, if I invoke some function in Lambda, wonderful, that's about 30 milliseconds away from me. Um, another 400 milliseconds for Lambda to wake up, figure out what code to run, hit some database, another 20. Uh, find a value, do some compute and store value, hey, I'm pretty quickly at half a second. And that's challenging if you're dealing with, you know, uh, I don't know, anything north of 50,000 events a second. It's really challenging because the end-to-end latency per event is half a second, but we have to deal with 50,000 of them. Okay, cool. Are there fifty thousand servers up in AWS? Yes, it can deal with it. But the funny thing is that they're spending most of their time idle, and idle in a way which is you know which is logical for them, but you pay for it. And so an application becomes expensive uh, because of the abstraction.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So that's a really good point. So the stateless and maybe more simple to work with. You know, I'm building a proof of concept. I'm a, a startup. I don't really have a lot of traffic. I'm not working nearly with 50,000 events a second and it might be fine. But then as you're talking about, you know, serverless on a wider scale, essentially enterprises that are running a very high traffic applications that would have something like you described, 50,000 events a second. That's where that extra 100, 200, 400 milliseconds of time is going to keep increasing that cost and the latency requirements. So what's kind of the uh, the solution there?
1: Um, so what's going on typically in a serverless application, or at least Lambda today, and I'm not picking an AWS, all the clouds have them, um, is this notion of statelessness and databases. And it was a wonderful thing for building a cloud. It really helped. But it has this cost, which is that a server spends most of its time idle. I want to be very clear here that By comparison with CPU and memory time, talking to, you know, a remote database or server or whatever is a million or 10 million times slower. Okay. And that's huge. It's absolutely huge. So something that should take a nanosecond or 10 or 20 takes half a second. Okay. So the problem is statelessness, that is, if a Lambda function remembered what the last value was that I had in my event stream, and then computed on the new one, and did it all in memory, and didn't necessarily worry with storing everything in a database, wow, we're suddenly running at CPU and memory speed, which is nanoseconds. Nanoseconds versus hundreds of milliseconds so we're looking at you know a million times faster and therefore cheaper
0: yeah so this seems like a seems like something that you know it raises a lot of uh, very strong questions um i think we've heard some people in the community bring up the idea around the idea that we should have serverless state um and uh it's been it's been something that you know stateless is a way to build these applications without having to worry about some of the the underlying you know issues at least I guess to some degree, when you're building service applications on AWS, if the support's not there, you're kind of out on your own to build something yourself. So where, where has that come in? What have you seen as being a potential solution to help uh, bring state to serverless and kind of get past this idea that we're spending hundreds of milliseconds on things that take nanoseconds to actually execute?
1: Yeah, so I haven't seen a ton of activity. Well, I've seen a few projects which are really interesting to watch. They're all based on stateful computing in memory. Um and Swim is one of them, Swim OS, um, which you can find at swim Um the the fundamental goal here is to deal with certain circumstances where, for example, data volumes are large or um you know data is generated by widely distributed and um And quickly relocating mobile devices, or when data is ephemerally valuable, that is, you know, it's the real world and you don't want to store it all, or you really need to have an answer right now. Okay. So I don't want to ding serverless for its common use case, which is, you know, the average thing where one or two seconds of latency is fine. But for real time, applications at scale where you, for example, have to manage the the state of the city and predict, you know, future traffic conditions downtown, okay, or um, manage the connection quality for mobile devices. You You have hundreds of millions of devices and the statelessness becomes a problem, okay? And I've seen this also in the case Of projects like Kafka and uh, Pulsar where the notion of a stream processor exists and the stream processor is increasingly becoming a stateful um, entity which computes on events as they occur. So stateful execution becomes really important because it allows you to scale and it allows you to achieve massive speed-up versus statelessness and database access.
0: Let me me try to dial that back. So, stateful computing, as you said, uh, stateful execution allows you to scale up, speed up. Um, You mentioned Kafka and how they're actually working with state. And you you talked about some of the breakdowns with uh, stateless applications when it comes to really high-scale, or sorry, high-traffic applications that, for instance, are predicting uh, traffic conditions downtown. And so, swim.ai is one way this, that you're trying to tackle this problem. And I guess, like for the listeners out there that haven't heard of Swim.ai yet, what, what is swim.ai? What is the uh, Swim OS?
1: So, Swim OS is an open source Apache 2 licensed application platform which um, executes statefully applications at massive scale. Okay, so I'm, when I'm talking massive scale, you know, gigabytes a second, right? Um, are no problem for us. And it's an a distributed in-memory uh, computational platform for applications which are based on the actor paradigm. So your listeners might know what the actor paradigm is, but here's a simple way of thinking about it. For every source in the data, there is an object That object is also concurrent, so it's a process, right? And it's actually executing in real time, and it's consuming independently its own raw data and statefully evolving, okay? So it's like stateful serverless. It's a thing, it exists, it's a process, and it curates its own state, right? If you want to store the original raw data, that's fine. We don't care. It's just that you... Compute first, then store. And these objects curate their own state and link to others in real time. And so these links are built based on real-world relationships which are discovered in, discovered in the data. So, for example, uh, proximity or containment or even correlation. Okay. And links are like, well, it's a bit like LinkedIn for things. Okay, if I link to you, I get to see your updates. And so when two things, A and B, are linked, they see each other's state in real time. And then they can compute on their own state and the state of other things they're linked to. So, for example, they can learn and predict based on their own state and the state of their environment. So links are dynamic. They compute continually. They're formed and broken all the time, and so Swim is building a graph and executing in uh, in parallel lots of different thousands, millions of these different digital twins of things um, are all computing independently and streaming the results of their computation to user interfaces, to APIs, and so on. The key innovation that Swim brings is that there is, for the application developer, no notion of distribution or of a server. They write an object-oriented program relating the objects in their world and how they want them to link and compute, but they don't care at all about how the application gets executed, how state gets distributed, or anything else. And CERM basically deals with all of that through... A streaming abstraction where different instances of Swim uh, form a mesh and synchronize state in such a way that all distributed objects uh, can compute in real time. So it's a distributed application platform which completely hides the notion of service but gets us to server- serverless in a stateful
0: way. Yeah, that was super well said. I think one thing that popped out to me there, uh, being a software developer developer myself and hearing kind of the fact that you've abstracted away the underlying server, swim.ai is handling this stuff in the background. As a developer, how would I actually interact with the Swim OS? Is there integrations to a cloud provider? Is Swim.ai its own cloud provider? How does how does that kind of fit in if I was writing yeah. a uh, an so API?
1: A typical deployment is hybrid. So often you'll find that These digital twins of things that are dealing with lots of raw data will want to be on prem or, so for example, in a city data center, right? But the analysis, learning, and prediction might occur in an instance in a cloud with a GPU attached. Okay, so it's true hybrid, but the application developer doesn't need to care. So a deployment of Swim would involve instances which are on-prem, say in some city data center, and then some instances in the cloud, but the application developer has no idea of this whatsoever. And the Swim platform takes care of where things execute and how this program gets built by data and executes and delivers its results but the application developer doesn't need to know at all about this. So the clean abstraction here is that we get stateful objects, essentially. They're truly serverless in that Swim deals with where they run. And Swim ensures that state is available
0: across hybrid cloud and on-prem deployments. And so I I think one thing that... And there might be just some confusion on my end. Um when it comes to actually the hosting of the, the Swim OS, is that something that I would be hosting myself or is that something that the Swim AI uh platform would be basically yeah. they would be handling that abstraction?
1: Swim OS is tiny. It's a two megabyte extension uh set of extensions to the JVM, or you can maybe compile with Graal. So it's linked with your application at compile time. It fits into your DevOps tool chain very easily. And then you just deploy it. So your DevOps tooling deploys some number of Swim instances. And they, well, it's still in development, but they will soon be able to automatically talk to Kubernetes to acquire the additional compute resource. But the Swim platform Is deployed, so some number of instances get deployed, and then on top of that, Swim will run your application. Okay, so you have some number of instances that are clustered, and your application naturally distributes across the cluster because Swim is aware of the capabilities of each node and the needs of each one of these concurrent objects and moves them
0: around to best fit their real time needs. Okay. So in, in that case would uh so swim is almost like acting as an orchestrator or servers that Swim is running on, those are deployed maybe during your CIC pipeline, something like that. Um and so am I am I understanding that correct correctly?
1: Yes, so Swim is basically a set of extensions which allow your think of it as Java objects to become concurrent things, digital twins of real world objects. The real world objects get represent as digital twins automatically when the data shows up. So Swim creates those digital twins. They, they then actively curate their state and um, look for raw data and so on. And then the graph builds because you program it this way, right? So you said that traffic lights have these sensors or something or other. And so automatically the graph gets built and computation happens because each one of these objects is a concurrent digital twin, and it can compute on its own state and the state of things it is linked to.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think it's come together a little bit. And I and when it comes to is with it being open source, is there any ideas around you know other companies potentially springing up off the back of the Swim OS to then build their own companies around the operating system?
1: Look at the moment we see a huge trend towards the processing stateful processing of streaming data is being fundamentally important. Okay, we've seen this from Confluent from Streamlio, you know, the various cloud platforms are going that way. And so in general if we can get people to adopt stateful computation, that'd be great. And we will benefit as a result of that. The key goal for us right now is to get people to adopt this notion of stateful serverless versus stateless serverless. Okay. And once they get to that paradigm of stateful serverless, which is very easy to adopt, they can very quickly build applications and so on.
0: And, um, That'll create opportunity for all of us. Gotcha. And and when it comes to people that are looking at state stateless serverless or stateful serverless, is there a crossover where somebody that's working with uh, stateless serverless currently, where maybe they're not working on like, a high-traffic application, would there still be cases where startups would be using, uh, for instance, Swim, uh, Swim OS? Oh, if there are, and there are a couple – Um, That's
1: fabulous. We want people to just pick it up and go. In general, these abstractions are powerful. They let application developers freely, more freely construct applications without worrying about infrastructure. And um, that's the goal generally. That is, we want to move to a world where application developers who know about their particular needs just get on with it, and don't worry about DevOps
0: or any of this stuff. Just write the app. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's really cool that, that, that you've been working on this. Um, I guess the question that would come, come to mind for me and probably a few listeners as well is, where, where did you come from? What perspective did you come from to, to kind of spawn the inspiration to build Swim, Swim AI? You know, I'm extraordinarily lucky to be
1: the CTO of Swim, the real brain trust here is this guy called Chris Sachs, who is unbelievably he's a you know, he's a child prodigy and he's built you know, huge amounts of the swim platform. Um, his background is really in the IoT world, where he started building applications for a much more intelligent infrastructure like you know, smart lighting and so on. And um, he realized that, in fact, applications need to be adjunct or closer to the things uh, that were generating data. And so over the years, built the Swim platform. It started out in IoT, but has become vital to the infrastructural ambitions of you know large providers who are at scale and deal with
0: gigabytes per second worth of data, often in the cloud. That's really interesting, yeah. I'm definitely curious to hear more about uh, Chris Sacks and I'll um, definitely, and everyone listening should probably look that up. Um, And then when it comes to um, the future, you mentioned something about Kubernetes and kind of working within that to build the instances that Swim would run on top of. If you think about DevOps, okay, there's build the app and manage the app
1: lifecycle, but then there's all this Nightmare of managing containerization, what goes in containers, how many instances you need, what mesh do you need, and so on, right? Why on earth do developers have to worry about that? Swim takes care of all these challenges, right? Now, a very obvious thing for Swim to do is to automatically acquire and release capacity in the cloud as it needs it. It already moves these digital twins, these web agents, around between instances in real time based on their need for compute, memory, bandwidth, and other resources like GPUs. So an obvious thing for it to do is to say, hey, Kubernetes, I need a new instance so I have more compute available. Okay? And that's a core part of what's being developed now. Once we get there, then the question of how many instances do I need, or where does this stuff run—is it on the edge or in the cloud? You know, those questions just don't make sense anymore. What makes sense only is will swim, acquire, and release the resources as needed, and the answer should be yes.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. I think that that's a really good, a really good uh, point that we can talk about. We talk about a lot with uh, serverless, and it's the the management of it. And, you know, even though we're doing serverless now, you know, before when we were working with servers and containers, um, you know, and I'm talking from the idea that we're building applications with Lambda functions and things like that now. Uh, yeah. if we take that perspective. Before, you know, we worried about the server, the capacity, the we had to do backups, we had to build AMIs, we had to do all this stuff. Um, and now, and, that, and sometimes that would be, you know, for a startup that was very limiting. Now the barrier of entry has gone way down where people can just write your Node.js, write your Java, write your C Sharp load that onto a cloud function and run it. However, the, the things that are still kind of gaps there are people that are working at a much larger scale and actually making a migration over to serverless. And I think, you know, they kind of have to work within these constraints that we currently have. Yeah. And so I, I, I would say like, to you, do you imagine that these constraints are gonna, how, what, how are you bullish on the next few years in serverless? Do you think that we're gonna get past all, uh, most of these uh, issues?
1: So serverless and DevOps is creating a whole new IT skill set which is really important to the running of these applications at scale. Great. But it's complex nonetheless. So for example, if you look at, you know, just running some simple software in the cloud, you need a whole bunch of instances, each of which is dealing with something. And thereby we end up with a ton of complexity. And complexity is okay, but it's also brittle. Okay, so if people move on or whatever, then you don't really know how to evolve this infrastructure. And what I worry about with the broader DevOps movement and the complexity of cloud infrastructure is just that it's fragile in the future. Okay, so the cool thing about serverless is it gives us this... Idea that applications can be completely freed from infrastructure, which is totally awesome. The challenge is to do so in a way which is efficient and makes the best use of compute. And so, a stateful option there is really important, okay? Because otherwise, you end up with a ton of resource being wasted because most of these Lambda functions sit idle waiting for databases to respond. So if we can move to a stateful architecture, or at least have that available, then we can dramatically reduce the cost of running applications whilst taking advantage of this fundamental advance, which is serverless.
0: Yeah, to bring up my own personal experience working with serverless at scale and doing some consulting on my end, you know, we've seen clients where they've they've almost switched away from Lambda functions at a certain point due to the the large duration of the actual lambda's running and then the cost. And they've sort of like, you know, we could run this, you know, on a container, we could run this on a server. And yeah, we're giving up some of our, you know, automated, fully managed aspects of it. But the the overhead and the cost and the, and the latency of it ended up being like, they went to serverless and now they're switching back some of their workloads. Have you seen that as well? Absolutely. I don't want to brag, but there is no deployment of Zoom
1: that I've seen where we do not reduce cost by 99%, okay? And wow, why is that? Because you take advantage of stateful computing, which runs at the speed of the CPU memory, as opposed to hundreds of milliseconds to do stateless lookup of code, databases, and so on, right? And so you're operating at CPU memory speeds mostly i o bound, but nonetheless you now millions of times faster
0: yeah, I think that that, that number is going to stick out, reducing costs by ninety nine percent I think that that's a <laughs> it's pretty amazing that you can that you can state that, and the idea that you know it's millions of times faster, and the, the idea that' you're, you're not having to worry about cold starts and somebody like literally triggering a download of your 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 zip file and it's too <coughs> big, and so it takes longer. Yeah, and so I guess like, uh, you know, since we're coming up to time, I'm sure we could actually go on on this for probably a few hours. Uh, When it comes to advice for people that are getting into serverless or starting to work with these type of things, and or companies that are starting to get involved in the idea of working with serverless, do you have any advice for them?
1: Focus on the application and demand infrastructure abstractions, which increasingly or decrease the effort that you have to put in. And I think the cloud vendors are doing good things. They're trying to get there too. If you look at the complexity of patterns in AWS or Azure. And so my advice to most folks is don't worry too much about the abstractions underneath you because they will change. They're getting better and they're getting better fast. And if you look at something like Swim, you know, writing an application is really easy, and deploying it is a cinch. So I would say focus on the app, look at modern infrastructure abstractions, streaming data, and so on, and
0: um, staple compute. Fantastic. And do you have anything that you would want to shout out or promote, uh, Simon? other than Swim.ai,
1: so go to developer.swim.ai, and you'll see everything you need to do to develop real-time apps that are stateful, real-time UIs in the browser with a complete implementation in JavaScript and TypeScript, and um, get going building fun apps really cheaply.
0: Perfect. Well, I think that that does it. Thanks again, Simon, for being our guest
1: very pleasure. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Absolutely. And to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to know more, check out TalkingServerless.io or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest.